Konnichiwa. Welcome to the Jandals in Japan podcast. Hi, Catherine. <laughs> Here we are for another episode of Jandals in Japan podcast. It's so exciting. I'm really glad to see how this is picking up on the networks and people are very interested in the podcast. It's so good. And as we're talking today, it's springtime in Japan, finally. Yay. Yay. We've had such a great start to spring. I mean, really, spring starts a little bit earlier in Japan, back in sort of early February. But the official, I guess, spring is when the sakura, the cherry blossoms, come out. And we've just seen a beautiful, beautiful array of sakura this year, right? Yes, sakura season is a very exciting season in Japan. And I know a lot of people want to visit Japan during the cherry blossom season to be able to experience this phenomena of all of these cherry blossoms all blooming and people outside enjoying the beautiful scenery and having food and meeting their friends and drinking a lot under the trees, which kind of leads us to our topic today, which is is. New Zealand wines. Yeah, New Zealand wines. And I have in the past had lots of cherry blossom viewing parties underneath the trees drinking uh, New Zealand Sauvignon and Pinot and so it's really appropriate that we have uh, a guest speaker today who is speaking just about that wine market in Japan and we really look forward to bringing him to you today. It is interesting though that Japan has a different way of sort of dealing with alcohol that is doesn't happen in New Zealand like when you get on a train, you can totally just crack open a beer or crack open <laughs> a chuhai, uh, which is a kind of like an RTD drink or, well, not so much a bottle of wine, but you can just totally sit there at 10 o'clock in the morning and have a beer on the train when you're going somewhere on a long distance train that is not the sort of local commuter train. Whereas that wouldn't be allowed in New Zealand so much, right? Or go to a park and sit there with your friends and have a picnic, have some beers, completely fine. and. Even standing outside a 7-Eleven, have a beer with your friends is not really socially acceptable, but it's legally, it's not illegal, right, to stand outside. Correct, right. And I sort of recall back in the day of Rugby World Cup in 2019, there were so many people out on the streets walking to the stadiums and they all had something, uh, some sort of beverage, usually a beer in their hand as they walked towards the stadium. So it's, it's accepted, isn't it? Whereas that's a bit of a contrast between Japan and New Zealand in that way. So tell us about our guest today. Who's coming on the show? Well, the guest today is Carl Robinson, and he's well known in the market. I've known him for more than 10 years myself. He's well known in the wine industry here. He imports from all kinds of countries, old world and new world. Of course, from the best wine country, as we both believe, New Zealand. He heads up wine seller Aoyama. He's also CEO of uh, Wine Diamonds, another company. And he just lives and breathes wine. And because he's been so successful in Japan, we just thought it was about time to have Carl on the show and share his insights on how he has been so successful as a jandal in Japan in this land of the rising sun. Yeah, you have been very generous and sent me some of his wines. And they are just amazing. The choice that he has made to bring certain brands into Japan, so on point, so good. So let's share this interview with Carl. Yay, here we go. Kia ora, Carl. Carl. Hi there, how are you doing? Good to see you, Carl. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
Thanks for coming on the show today, Carl. First question, A or B, sake, hot or cold? Which are Depends you? Depends on the mood, but mm. um, more often cold. Oh, okay. I like it cold. I don't really want to have it hot ever. How about you, Catherine? Are you hot or cold? Oh, this is interesting. I think I like it both ways, but I haven't had any hot sake for a very long time. I think I'm a cold person now. A cold sake mm. person, not a cold like <laughs> Catherine. <laughs> Yeah, if I was at a ski, maybe an upraised ski or something, maybe I could be tempted, but yeah. Absolutely. Cold. I think it's because we tend to not drink the good sake warm. But if you have the good sake warm, it's actually can be good. Can be really good. So both. Both. Yeah. For sure. I do I haven't actually had a sake this year, so I must do that sometime. Um twenty twenty two needs me to have some Nihonshu or sake. I've planted in my thoughts. Well, really, thank you so much, Carl, for coming on. We you know, invited you on to the Jandals in Japan podcast because you've been here a very long time. You've got lots and lots of knowledge and especially, of course, when it comes to all things about the wine business. You've taught wine courses here. You've been involved and are still involved in multiple wine-related businesses uh, such as Wine Diamonds and a New Zealand wine producer. You head up the recently opened Aoyama Wine Cellar Deluxe Retail Boutique Shop and Restaurant, following on from that very, very successful Jeroboam wine business. And so, you know, you're really a key guest for us to have here on the show. Um, your experience here on the ground is going to be really very interesting for any business that's thinking of coming into Japan, especially if they are into doing wine. So it's very much welcome, Carl. We will be putting your full bio into the show notes, but tell us, Carl, yeah. first up, your inspiration for coming to Japan, setting up business here. You could have chosen any country in all of the whole world, including your own hometown, you know, in New Zealand. Why did you yeah. come to Japan? Our um, journey, the hour, because my wife is also a Kiwi. She's another Jandal. She's from Auckland as well. We're both met in New Zealand and Auckland at university and my wife Jeanette was the one who was uh, was into Japan she was majoring in Japanese at Auckland University I was doing something else I can't remember philosophy psychology running around getting drunk using new usual university <laughs> stuff and um, we ended up after university I was work working in New Zealand as a musician and the band I was with we decided to move to London we moved to London in 1987 and my wife came to Japan and lived in Fukushima Ken for six months um, on a working holiday visa, just kind of having a look at using her the Japanese that she'd learned and culture she'd studied and having a, a look around. And after her working holiday experience finished, she came to London and we then decided that I should come and have a look at Japan. And we came here for our extended honeymoon in 1991. So, again, with the working holiday visa that was available between New Zealand and Japan and ended up living in Kyushu in the mountains and enjoying the Japanese countryside and trying to learn Jap Japanese and the culture. So, hence living in the middle of nowhere. We did various jobs. I was working in a bean sprout factory and my wife was working in a bar and a restaurant in the mountains. But it was great. We got to um, experience Japan and learn Japanese. And after that experience was finished, we moved back to London. And I then started working in the wine industry, finished studying wine in London. My wife was working for a major Japanese corporation in London, Nippon Yusan, Mitsubishi company. And we thought we would like to come back and have a experience Japan again. So 
she got them to transfer her from London to Tokyo. She was the first foreign female manager ever to work in Nippon Yusen, which was a big honor, honor to her. They told her on the first day, you are the first female manager that we've ever had in Japan, but you still might be asked to make the tea for guests. So that was, well, she was told on day one. I'm sure you can <laughs> understand um, how that works. But in fact, it worked out very well and we able to got us to come back. And that was in, um, it was at a time when wine was just becoming very popular in Japan. The wine culture here was kind of taking off. There was the, the wine boom, the first wine boom, which came around, this was 1996. So in 1996, we arrived and wine was really um, taking off. I managed to get the only job that I could in Japan in wine. I was the trailing spouse, so I wasn't the major income earner. But um, I managed to get a job as a wine consultant at the Tokyo American Club, which was good because my limited, my still limited Japanese at that point was, um, was good enough to, to get me into there. So I ended up working there for several years, writing their wine program and training staff and buying wine for them. And that's how we started. So from there, I was started to do various consulting businesses in, in the wine industry, including, as you point out, teaching about wine. I was teaching the English version of the wine course that um, I had studied in London. I was writing about wine for um, various publications, JAL in Flight magazine and what have you, writing and was consulting to for restaurants to write their wine lists and for hotels, for supermarkets to create their wine programs. So I was kind of doing a multi-level consulting. So that's how I kind of en ended up moving into the business full-time here. And then I created a company in New Zealand for export of New Zealand wine throughout the world. And we exported New Zealand wine to 30 different countries around the world through a network that I had connected with and based in France of different wine export companies with customers around the world. So we ended up working here with more than a dozen exporting New Zealand wine brands to more than a dozen importers here in Japan. I was introducing them, training, taking staff to New Zealand, taking importers down to New Zealand. And that was very, it was very successful. The brands we've introduced to Japan now represent about 70% of all New Zealand wine sold in Japan. So that was started in 2002. And then in 2003, I had the opportunity to create my own import company with some partners. And so in 2003, Jeroboam, the wine importer, was created to concentrate on importing the best of the best wines from around the world, including New Zealand and Australia, but with, with a, an emphasis on France and California and various top brands. I stopped doing all the consulting and concentrated on that, the dirty money side of the business, if you like, rather than the the consulting, fun, drinking and hanging at restaurants side of the business. And that's that's how we kind of took off. And so we've been, and Jeroboam will be 20 years old next year. So we're kind of looking forward to that. Wow. So oh. your company that you were involved with before was responsible for around 70% of the wine that's imported. Of New Zealand wine. New Zealand wine, yeah, Japan. yeah, to, yeah. That came to we were able to um, We were able to place some brands here that have become very, very successful and continue to be very successful, continue to be market leaders in, in market here. Japan is a, um, a very curious market when it comes to anything, anything international, anything of quality, especially in the gourmet world, whether that be honey or cheese or wine or spirits or anything in the luxury world. Japan's a very receptive market. It does take a long time to get things established and built up. 
because there's no real demand for any, for anything in particular. So people will in Japan will buy what they're told to buy, but they're not running around the streets going, "Oh my God, I can't buy New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc," or "Oh my God, I don't have you know I'm buying Manuka honey." But if it's presented and if it's imported and if it's marketed, they'll buy it. We found that a lot of New Zealand brands historically found Japan to be in the hood too hard basket when it comes to export because of the amount of effort that was required to get into the market and the amount of effort that was required to build a brand in a market was um, just a lot of work. And a lot of the big brands that you would you find on your supermarket shelves in uh, Australia or the US or in New Zealand just are not here. They're not in the market. They didn't bother to push themselves in the market here. That created an opportunity as well for the brands that we were exporting to um, gain some traction in, in the market here. So. so, yeah, for me living here in Fukushima, not in Tokyo, obviously, I still struggle yeah. to find New Zealand wines in mm. my bottle store or in my supermarket. So mm. why are we not seeing New Zealand wines throughout Japan? Well, you, you do. They're here and the, the market, New Zealand is in the top 10, it's in the top 10 countries of, for wine exports to Japan. So it kind of sits where it should be in terms of its market share, for sure. I mean, it is here. I mean, the market, the wine business is certainly concentrated very much on the major metropolis. But there are always, I mean, because of the way distribution works in Japan, it's often that you will find products distributed in the tiniest towns. It is possible to distribute right throughout Japan. I mean, we distribute um, the wines that we import to every city in Japan. There's a, there's a method of getting them there. doesn't mean, mean that they, um, through using this, the distribution network, the, the sub-distribution network, to get them to the, to the small regions. It's totally possible. doesn't mean that every single wine is available in every single city. Yeah, I mean, and also the internet online sales here are very, very popular and very, very effective. So that also means that, you know, I see that for us, when we ship wine from our store that Catherine was mentioning mentioning um, in Japan, that we have customers in Shikoku and Okinawa and all over the place who are buying New Zealand wine online from us that we are shipping out. So it does work. I mean, it certainly changed a lot with the arrival of the big internet distributors. It's here. New Zealand wine is here. You've just got to, you've got to hunt it down, but it's, it's, it's a big place. And, you know, you can find anything. You can find peanut slabs if you search hard enough you can find Whitaker's Peanuts Labs in Tokyo. It's really very interesting Carl that you you've got to that 70% level through the endeavors that you had and I think that you're sort of speaking to the hard yards that are required to really drive and bring a brand in here and so how are you nurturing and delighting those customers now that they are uh, receiving New Zealand wine here? I mean, when, when we say the, the brands that we introduced in Japan represent a large part of the market, I mean, it's also the effort of the importers. We're not the importers of those of those wines. So with the 20 or so importers we worked with, they, they are the ones who did the, the work in promoting and building distribution for those wines. But it's just about giving those importers as much support as possible, telling the story of, of the wines, telling the story of, and we talk about New, Ze of New Zealand, why the wines are good, why the wines are special why they are i mean new zealand one is not expensive i mean new zealand is quite proud of the fact that it has the highest price per liter of any of the major wine producing countries in the world and we don't make cheap wine in new zealand we make good wine in new zealand that also creates challenges when it comes to market entry 
because it's expensive. You know, why should I pay more for a bottle of wine because it's New Zealand? But could constantly tell the story and constantly offer um, information to the, to the importers and to the consumer to encourage them to buy it. I think the amount of marketing that is required compared to in Japan compared to other markets for selling wine is huge. They want to know everything. They want to know the name of the dog in the vineyard. They want to know what color gum boots the winemaker wears. They want to know everything because it's all about learning and something new is something that is not that's culturally different and wanting to know everything. And uh, you know, from sommeliers, people working here, they want they ask amazing amount of questions about wines both technical and philosophical because they really want to know and they really want to be able to understand so when they talk to their customers they can they can explain the products well so there's a massive amount of marketing and information that is important to um, promote in Japan it was about delivering that to the importers so that they could pass it on to their customers yeah, I feel like Japanese consumers of wine are getting more savvy. They are moving away from saying aka wine, a red wine, please, or shiro wine, a white wine, please. And they're sort of getting to a better level there, a more savvy level, shall I say, of knowing some wine types, uh, varieties of the grapes. What do you think there? Is that explanation, those stories that you're saying, the, the dog on the wine label or the, the explanation of the wine variety is that helping consumers here understand more about the wine and actually going and then pairing it with something that is uh, sashimi or a, a sort of japanese food what do you think carl japan is in fact one of the would be in the top five in terms of market sophistication anywhere in the world i think um japanese probably know more about wine in general than a kiwi consumer or an australian consumer it's quite a sophisticated market with um a lot of wines from different places. You can buy wines from Georgia, from Canada, from you name it. They're here in Japan. And because it doesn't necessarily have a local market to support, all that, that is changing. And because the volumes of Japanese wine that are produced are really small and not enough to satisfy the demand for wine. So there's a lot of wines imported here from everywhere. So, you know, Italian or Spanish or German, they're all here. They're all here, Austrian, you name it. They've, they've got a good presence in Japan. And that's kind of un unique compared to its Asian neighbours. If you talk about the market in um, China or the market in other Asian countries, it, Japan is by far the most sophisticated wine market. And although it has changed a lot in the last in the last 25 years, but then you could say the same. I was just um, talking to friends this morning in New Zealand looking at a bottle of one slider Mulatogau from the 80s that we used to drink in New Zealand that was before they had even had Sauvignon Blanc you know labeled in New Zealand it wasn't that long ago that we didn't even have variety labeled Sauvignon Blanc in New Zealand it was only when Cloudy Bay made it famous that that became something so it's you know, things have changed a lot and Japan too has is kind of ahead of the curve in terms of wine knowledge in general and certainly in Asia and customer wine knowledge so that kind of helps that kind of helps so you mentioned that, yeah, the Japanese market is one of the most sophisticated. Is there something surprising about what they actually want? Considering if you're coming from New Zealand, where you, yep. for example, Savion Blanc is, is kind of the normal yep. popular. Is there something different mm -hmm. going on here in Japan? goes back to that question of demand. There is no demand. So you can, you want to say, I want to sell Hawks Bay Merlot, for example, which sells very, very well here. You can do it. They don't know. I think consumers here don't know what they want. You have to tell them what they want and then you sell it to them. 
So you should drink this. Here it is. You know, it's very much you've got to create a demand here. There's no innate demand. But that's the same for, for luxury goods in general, whether it's cosmetics or uh, fine food stuffs. This is a very, very sophisticated market where you can buy anything. I mean, you can buy anything here. If I want to have 18-month Comte that was just packaged in France or I want to have Escheret butter that was just made in in the hills of the Pyrenees, it's no problem. You can get it here. It costs money. It's not cheap, but you can find it here. It's a very, very sophisticated market. And because we have a lot of people and in general, those people have money for when it comes to luxury goods and um it's a very, very big market and people have money to spend. So, you, you know, it's just a question of finding your place in that market and marketing to ensure that you can sell to those consumers. But it's a big, sophisticated market for sure. That's it. It's Japan. I think the thing about wine, though, is that we want to taste it. I mean, the label may look pretty. We might have a great mm. explanation on the back of the label, but mm. we want to taste it. And and these days it's harder to actually go to tastings. You used to have a lot of events where we could all gather and do a lot of have a lot of tastings with winemakers visiting. How are you coping yes. with that now? And how is it looking going forward for you to be able to get more people into uh, tastings uh, so you can actually tell them that's what they want to be drinking? It's true. The um, Japan is still dominated. I mean, where most people drink wine in Japan, where they experience wine, is in a restaurant. I'd say much more than as New Zealand, where we drink it at home. You know, we go to the supermarket, get New World, get a bottle of wine, have a barbecue, get a bottle of wine. It happens much less here. People's lifestyles are quite different here. They don't entertain so much at home, if at all. And they don't consume um, so much at home of sophisticated wines. They tend to enjoy those as part of a dining experience. Um, I mean, we eat out here a lot more than you may do, that people do in, in, in somewhere like New Zealand, where people have spent hundred thousand dollars in their kitchen and they have they, they live in their kitchens here we live in restaurants you know we have tiny kitchens and we go out and we eat out so um restaurants are where wine is consumed generally so that it's still two-thirds of our business is still to restaurants and then as you point out that's been um, severely affected by the challenges of the pandemic in the last couple of years because restaurants have really suffered with the either they haven't had the ability to sell wine or people have been scared to go out and to, and to socialize and in um places where they could normally consume wine. So what has happened in the last two years is that the wine business has really shifted to people drinking more at home and to people buying online or to buying from retailers when they do go out shopping. Retail business has for wine has grown a lot in the last two and a half years and the online sales have grown a lot and people are drinking more at, at home. They think, oh, well, I can't go out, but I really want to have a nice bottle of New Zealand wine, so I'm going to buy a bottle of Dog Point. I'm going to drink it at home. I mean, with us, it's become more challenging to talk to those consumers. The internet is free in terms of real estate. You can put as much information up online about the products as you wish, and people may or may not read it. And that, so you can put a lot of uh, marketing real estate behind the brands that you put online for sale. But ultimately, the consumer still has to try and find a way to learn about the taste, which they can't from reading reading about it, but it's a challenge for sure. Like many industries, we went through the kind of like Zoom tastings and sending off little small samples to people to try. So it's been a lot of work. We've just kind of um, knuckled down and just waited really until people can start to go out and taste again. 
But you're right. If you can't taste, it's difficult to choose for sure. Also, I think the customer here trusts a lot in the person who recommends something. For example, Absolutely. even for myself, Absolutely. who is a pretty experienced wine drinker, I always ask you, Carl, what I should drink or what you recommend, and you will explain the wines to me very carefully and easily, and you know my palate. But you also challenge me a little bit by recommending some other things, and that's why I think you can still do it if you're doing Zooms or you can nurture and look after customers in that way as well. If you get to know them that well, you can then recommend something to them that you think could take them on a little adventure in the wine uh, palette, right? Absolutely, and that's very true. And there is a lot of brand loyalty to, say, importers or, or retailers. You know, Well, if, you, if we take example, Anatec, or her, the kind of like market leader in terms of retail here, there's a lot of trust in the brand of Anatec. Because Anatec say, this wine from New Zealand is good, people will buy it. They trust Anateca. They trust the importer. They're the brand that they import. Selene is the biggest selling New Zealand wine, wine in Japan by a country mile, where it wouldn't be a, the market leader in any other country in the world, but it's the market leader here. And that's because Anateca is the power of the importer with their distribution network and the faith that customers have in that brand will buy the wine because they say it's good. It's in an Anateca shop, they must be good, so we'll buy it. So yes, there's a lot of trust. I mean, I think that's why um, Sommelier is asking about the name of the dog and you know what color gun boots is because Sommeliers here, if they're serving wine in a restaurant, they don't want the customer to say, by the way, what color gun boots does the winemaker wear? Well, yeah, they, they need to know the answer. They study hard and they really study about the wines that they're going to put in their wines so they can deliver that experience to the customer. So that's why this is huge demand for knowledge in the trade here. Japan has more Sommeliers than any other country in the world. Japan has, you know, and in terms of wine education, it's one of the most, you know, the most sophisticated markets in terms of the amount of people who study wine, whether that be from a friendly course right through to a sommelier course. It's certainly a country hungry for knowledge and for getting badges and certificates and things <laughs> to put on your wall. <laughs> exactly. Oh, my goodness. I mean, you've really just shown there so many delightful things about Japan. A lot of people talk about Japan being so hard to get into and it's, you've got to be here for the long game. And I think you're showing from your very early stages of, you know, working in, in the field literally for Japan and now out on the field, right, t selling New Zealand wine as well as other wines. Is there something you would say, perhaps one or two or three things that really were key to your success in being able to establish businesses here and, and really sell wine to the market here? If you gave your top three um, in the, the playbook, what would that be, Carl? To go back one point, I think Japan, in fact, is one of the easiest places to do business anywhere in the world. And so I think that's a bit of a myth. I mean, in terms of if you're an entrepreneur and you want to come here and open a business and invest in plant or invest in property, there's nothing to stop you. It's not difficult to get visas to do that, to, to come here as a, as a non-resident. It's not that difficult. It's just time. Being able to establish a company here, be able to, to do all that, it's easy. It's much more easy than it is in a lot of other countries. It's, it's a fallacy to think that those things are difficult. There's stuff. There is regulatory stuff. There are rules. There are things. But that's just stuff. You can find a lawyer or an advisor or someone to help you with those issues. But in fact, it's quite easy. And in terms of uh, import, if you want to be an importer, again, it's quite easy. There's a lot of paperwork, but it's just stuff. Once you've done, once you've done it, 
it's done. You know, it's it's not difficult. Yes, you need to put this in the label. That's it. Just do it. The actual um, ability to do that is is quite simple and quite simple for a small entrepreneur to be able to come here and start specialist um, boutique importers or distributors. Not difficult, not difficult. There's no regulatory or legal or um, infrastructure challenges to doing that. That's not, not your problem. Your problem is time, effort to build up your business. And you have to be conscious of that. You know, you might not make money for the first four or five years if you invest heavily, but eventually, you, you know, once you do build up a customer base, it's, they are very loyal and very long-term and it's just happens once it's done it's kind of done it's quite easy to maintain a, a strong customer following and then there's all the other stuff that's just normal you know service has got to be perfect the standards here are, are, are very high people don't you know if the label is ripped can't sell it if the you know the box has got a dent in it can't sell it but those kinds of things you always have those kinds of challenges but they're not really problems they're just um, challenges but you can charge more money here. You can make good margins. You can, uh, it's, not a, it's not a problem at all. So I think um, to go back to your points, what are the key things that you need to be um, aware about? One, you need to be really sure that you're willing to put in the, the time and the effort to establish a business that you're going to do. You need to maintain very good standards in terms of uh, how you deal with, with business. I mean, just common sense stuff, but you know, sticking to your word, paying on time, all those kinds of things, <laughs> making sure that your uh, regulatory challenges are dealt with properly. And then it's impossible to know, if, living in New Zealand, living in Japan, and the stuff that you, you know, it's going to be too hard to learn, just get a specialist, hire someone, hire a lawyer, hire a business consultant, find someone in the import, in the regulatory industry who can, you can pay to help you to make sure that you are getting that stuff done. So that's another thing. Key thing is you need to reach out to people in the industry here that you are wish to be involved in and form relationships with those people. Um, invest in those relationships to make sure that you're getting the support that you, your business needs. The, the one that you mentioned is that it's just time. It's uh, often described as you know in Japan you bang your head against the wall, you know for six months and then one day you bang your head and the wall falls down. But once it falls down, it's gone forever. You're in. That's it. You're totally fine for good now. You, you suddenly you're one of you're part of the furniture, and that's it. And it, it it is often time. I mean, here with um, companies that are very big and very have a very long history, can often be quite difficult to form business relationships with. But the secret to that is just to be there and to take the time to to continue to be there. We had a big uh, event when we were ten years old. And we invited all the kind of big company people to come and celebrate the fact that we were 10 years old. And they're like, oh, 10 years old, all right. Because you, know, you seem like you just arrived yesterday. You know, we've been here 10 years now. And they say, oh, okay, so probably we're at you. Probably we should buy some wine of you then. I think this is often something that's challenging for uh, when we talk about, to go back to my industry, the wine industry, where some of the big players, the really big players that make gazillions of bottles of wine and they look at Japan and they think, well, you know, I could, I could, if I work hard and hard and hard, I could, maybe I could sell, I'm selling 200 cases in Japan. I could probably sell 10,000 cases, but the amount of effort I'm going to have to put into that, I could sell that in Sydney in the weekend, in a weekend, you know, so why bother? Too hard. 
And then you have someone else like uh, Selene in Hawke's Bay who were willing to put the effort in and take people to New Zealand and take them in balloon trips across Hawke's Bay and come up here and send the winemaker, winemaker up twice a year to do, go around and do dinners. And they've built, you know, the, you know, one in three bottles of New Zealand wine here is a bottle of Selene, sold in Japan as a bottle of Selene. You just have to take, you know, time and effort and asking for help and not compromising on standards. So those kinds of common sense, really, but there's some of the key things that you have to do for sure. I'd love to hear if you have any predictions or things, if you could gaze into your crystal ball, what do you see happening in the market in Japan or in Japan in general? If we talk about the industry I'm in, I think there is a expectation of sustainability on organics and food and beverage. It's becoming more important for producers to start to work that way and consumers demand more knowledge about what's in the in the things that they're eating and drinking and that's becoming much more important here i mean right now we 90 of what we import is organic or biodynamic and i see that being 100 not too far away it's becoming more more of a um, selling point the other thing that's is challenges like food miles or as they're called in my industry about shipping and why are we doing that? Why are we sending mineral water from Alps of Italy to Tokyo restaurants when we've got perfectly adequate water running off Mount Fuji? So there's that food miles, that sustainability is going to become a, a very, very important part of um, the import and export of food and beverage, for sure. I, I think Japan will continue to be a major consumer market. I mean, people talk about how Japan's all had its heyday and it's all over, but there's still a lot of people here. You know, I don't need everyone in Japan to buy my wine. I just need, a, you know, 1%. And I'm good. You know, that's fine. That's more than enough. It's still a very, very, very big market. Even though we're losing a million people a year, that's all right. You know, we're, there's still plenty left. <laughs> there are still plenty left. You know, I should probably notice if you get the train in Tokyo, you know, there are still yes. plenty of people around. <laughs> Plenty of people and they do like to have drinking with their friends, right? So it's it's not going to be a dying market. It is sitting there and it's going to build. And I love the concepts you've brought out there with food miles, that carbon footprint, sustainability, Absolutely. biodynamics, organic wines. And I think that means we have to also do another step up, right, in educating and familiarizing the consumer with what that actually means because there's different meanings around those words for different people. That's true. I mean, it is quite confusing for the consumer, but I think it will become more important as it is in New Zealand, as it is in, um, in, in most markets, when you packaging, all, all those kinds of things around sustainability, you, the use of plastic. We've made an effort not to use any plastic at all in our new retail and premises and with, even with all our shipping and everything, there's no plastic. Products, their businesses are certainly striving to be as sustainable as they can. And consumers are willing to pay more for that. So, and, and also it's a kind of a, it's an opportunity for New Zealand because New Zealand finds itself with a very fortunate image that it, uh, of being clean and green, even though it may not necessarily be so clean and green, but um, it certainly has an image there. And people, when they think about New Zealand, they kind of think of the South Island or masses of hills with two sheep on them and what have you. They, they have this image of, Lots of nothing, which there certainly is lots of um, empty space in, in New Zealand. So it's easier to explain to someone a product from New Zealand being um, sustainable or organic. There's already a kind of like a, a preconception that that's what New Zealand is anyway, given that no one lives there or, or everyone lives in one city, as it were. 
So many wonderful gold mines there and opportunities I think there are for Kiwi businesses. Before I go into just the last few bits and pieces and some great last minute words from you, Carl, and perhaps you can share some activities and promotions that you're thinking about at the moment. What specifically could be a pitfall for any wine producer or importer who's thinking of coming into Japan right now? Should they be thinking about something in particular? Is there something that's recently tripped you up, even though you're a veteran in the market? Anything you've seen others do over the last while that perhaps you could just point out as a tip for pitfall avoiding? I think we've covered some of the points. I think um, trying to be honest and of high integrity when you're, when you're trying to enter the market in Japan, don't muck around. Make sure that you, you can deliver what it is that you say you can. Don't under-deliver. Don't mess up contracts. <laughs> They're just normal business stuff, but they, be, they can become very damaging for you in Japan if you make a mistake. It can be quite unforgiving. It can set you back a long way if you um, mess something up. Don't lie, you know, don't say you're organic when you're not, don't. Mm. Say things about your products that are that can be found out to not be quite as you have explained them. Right, <laughs> so yeah, very good point. Those things, those things are very important because um, Japan is a very, very loyal market, but they're very quick to turn their back. They feel that something has been done that's not quite correct. A lot of the images that we see from overseas, the Japanese work very hard and they're very strict and they're very, you know, loyal and honest and those things you know to a lot of degrees are true and they expect that of the people that they do do business with things can go wrong you know spiders can end up in bottles which don't look very nice when they're sitting on the self shelf in takashimaya but you know spiders just being a spider but it can happen and it can really uh, cause a lot of problems <laughs> i mean spiders are you know, most of our wines are protein free but the, the odd bottle might have a little bit of protein <laughs> but um you just have to be as careful as you can with those kinds of issues Try not to get caught out. And if you do get caught out, have a plan to make sure that you can um, follow up and, and deal with it. So for those uh, listeners who would love to enjoy some of your wines and things, can you share yes. your websites where people can come and taste wines, etc.? Absolutely. As um, Catherine pointed out at the beginning, we, and this is planned pre-COVID anyway, but as an importer, we relied historically on the trade, i.e. the sommeliers and the wine shop owners to, to sell our wines. We weren't selling our wines. We weren't putting the wines in the hands of the people who were drinking them, in fact. We were putting them in into restaurants and the, the sommeliers sold them. The market has changed is changing. We all we market now to people like you and Catherine, you know, people who drink the wine, the actual important people. So that's meant to change for us in um, in opening our own first wine boutique. The idea was to create a space where you could come and see the wine, taste wine, and also talk about the brands and also enjoy the wine in a restaurant setting if you wish for the same price as the, as the wine store. So no service charge, no tax. <laughs> so just very good value when it comes to fine wine. That's in Aoyama, and that's called uh, the Selador Aoyama. And we have an online business that reflects that. So if you can't make it because you're in the beautiful... Fukushima Coast, then you can buy online as well. So that's um, selladorfinewine.jp. That's our new, our new baby. We opened in the worst possible time to open a restaurant in Japan, which was in July last year when we couldn't actually open. But that's all right. It's Japan. We have time. <laughs> <laughs> very good. I'm looking very forward much to... looking forward to uh, to a future where um, 
things are back to some kind of normality. And having the borders open because we forget that our consumers here in Japan were often not Japanese, in fact, but we went from having 40 million tourists a year to none. So that's a lot of 40 million tourists is a lot of people. And if you ever went to Kyoto on a busy weekend, you kind of can believe that it was a lot of people here on holiday. But those people bought a lot of expensive wine, a lot. Um, you know, and so we need those guys back in the market. <laughs> and um think the future of Japan as a kind of a tourist mecca, as it were, is definitely going to come back for sure. And that also creates a lot of opportunity here in Japan for people who are if you're interested in the ski industry or the luxury resort industry, there's certainly lots of opportunities for business here in, in that world. Can I tell um, a quick story, Catherine, to Carl about what happened when you came to visit me up here in Fukushima and you bought some of Carl's wines with you, didn't you? I and did, And we stayed yeah. at yeah. this Dilkan in Yumoto Onsen, which is in Iwaki City. And Yumoto Onsen has been suffering from, you know, the fallout of the power nuclear power station melting down, you know, 11 years ago and still really struggling to get a lot of customers. And one of my friends is the owner of this Yokan. And so we went and stayed there for the weekend. And what, what did you do, Catherine? Well, I gave her a bottle of your wine to say thank you um, for having us. And just as a, you know, a custom, we do that here. We're going to see somebody, we take a gift. And it's always been my policy if I'm staying at a Ryokan to take something New Zealand with me. And it's usually wine. So that's what I did. And then what was it? Was it a dog point or something? It was a dog point. Yeah, yeah, it was a dog point Sauvignon. You know, the, the best buy that I always am always buying from you. Yes, it was that. And then the next or a couple of weeks later, I went back to the Yokan and the Okami-san said, oh, we drank that wine that you that Catherine gave us. It was really good. And she said, actually, we've been getting a lot of requests from guests for wine now more than ever before. Usually it's just sort of sake and whiskey and things, but they're wanting wine and we don't know anything about wine, but this New Zealand wine was amazing. Maybe we'll, we'll get some of that in here. So I just wanted to tell you that little story about a bottle right. of wine that went to Fukushima and then was a jump, maybe a jumping off point for having more New Zealand wines in a Ryokan somewhere in Japan. Great. I mean, it's certainly changed. I mean, as um, I haven't been here a long time, you know, now you kind of expect Certainly in Tokyo, you expect to find wine anywhere you go. When I arrived here, it was if they did have wine in a isekaya, it was like one bottle of red, one bottle of white, both in the coldest part of the fridge, right next to each other. But now, you know, I think most isekais have a little wine cellar, you know, maybe six or seven wines by the glass. It's and they're you know they're having it with their you know takoyaki and their fried chicken. So it's not the case that we need to be talking so much about food and wine pairing as a as an important thing. People are used to drinking wine everywhere now and. Soon in the um, in the Ryokans of Iwate, so that's even better. It's <laughs> great. Yeah, we want to do a uh, a wine demonstration and introduction up there, so that's in the planning. It mm. just uh, is all COVID dependent, and we've put that on hold for the moment. But it's certainly in our crystal ball gazing that we want to do that uh, in the future. So, Carl, thank you so much. Is there anything else you would like to share with us? Any activities or promotions you're doing, or any last words or something we didn't cover? please let us know. It was great fun to talk to, to you both and um, very enjoyable. 
we're waiting in Aoyama for anyone who's passing through Tokyo and if you can't come through and we'll very happily look after you um, online um, for all your New Zealand and other wine needs. So yes, for sure. And especially if, if they tell you that they have listened to you on Jandals in Japan podcast, I'm sure you'll look after them. I'm sure we will. I'm sure we'll find a glass of something with bubbles in them for them. <laughs> Sounds fabulous. Congratulations, Carl, then on being a successful Jandal in Japan. And thanks for telling us today all about your journey, your tips for success in this gorgeous land of the rising sun. Thank you very, very much. You're very welcome. Thanks very much. Wow, that was such an interesting interview with Carl. Catherine, tell us your top tips that you took away from his points today. Yeah, that was so good. I, it's very hard to pull out all the juicy bits, but I'll try. I did love, again, how Carl re reinforced that it takes time to be successful in Japan. You need to be willing to put in the time. Uh, people who haven't really been successful here have just been fly by night, have not been able to think about putting the time in. I also liked how he said about timing. So not only the time, but the timing of something. And he gave that great example of banging your head against the wall. And then finally the wall breaks down. I think he hit the spot there with time it takes to get somewhere. And then the timing of the wall breaking down, you're right in the market. So you've got to act. And when you do that, he gave some really good tips about maintaining standards, integrity, in your business dealings. And I thought that was very, very important. Sticking to your word, paying on time, the real basics, but they do matter in Japan because your trust and your reputation just disappears down the toilet, shall we say, if you don't <laughs> behave in a way that you really do stick to your word and keep your promises. He also talked about regulatory matters being just challenges, little blips on the screen. You know, they're not big things that should stop you from coming into Japan. They happen everywhere around the world. It just means that Japan has a different way of doing things, perhaps, but they are only challenges. And I liked how he sort of myth busted that yes. aspect of Japan being too difficult. Uh, here you are, Jane, having lots of experience in Japan, a long time here. Me too, 20 years for both of us, 40 years together. We wouldn't be here if we didn't find it relatively easy after we had busted our head against the wall. So yeah, that was a, that's it, right? That, a really good thing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that that wall analogy, I I was just like, yep, yeah. it's sort of ten years maybe or five years of busting your head against the wall, and then suddenly, oh, I'm on the inside. Things are just flowing now, and of course, you'll yeah. have difficult days or challenges or whatever, but definitely getting through that wall once you've done it, it's like wow. It's all, yes. it's all good now. So yeah, yeah, and I think what he's meaning too is not just banging your own head against the wall. To get that wall broken down, what tools do you need? And the tools he was mentioning came in the form of other specialists, someone who knows the regulatory stuff, someone who can draw up your contract, someone who can tell you to do it this way or that way, who can help you with the designing of the label. Those sort of specialists, I think he really showed that and spoke about investing in those relationships um, with specialists. If you don't want to do it yourself or know how to do it, get someone else to bring the tool and help you bang down the wall. So mm. that was a superb discussion. I loved that episode and I hope it's been really, really helpful. I think you think, like me, it's been really helpful, Jane. Definitely. I mean, this goes across all industries, not just wine, obviously, or anyone looking to bring things into Japan and even anyone who's already here. 
living here, if you just live in Japan, you can take some of his things to heart, pay your bills on time, show up on time. You can be very successful in Japan if you follow those kinds of rules in your daily life here as well. So especially if you're coming here for business for the first time, adopt those in your daily life as well. Remember, you are representing New Zealand every day, not just when you're at work, in your free time, when you put your rubbish out, when you walk down the street, you're always representing New Zealand. So that's something I hope that all New Zealanders will keep in mind as they go about their business in Japan and their daily life too. And I think the other thing that I really liked about what Carl said was sometimes you've just got to tell the Japanese consumer what they want or what they need. They may not have thought about it. You know, Cellini, he mentioned that as a, a brand that is doing so well in the wine industry and as a wine maker, as a wine producer, a New Zealand wine producer in Japan, I'm sure that the companies who are selling that wine told the industry, right, told the consumer, this is what you need, this is what you want. Yeah, I definitely notice when I go to the supermarket, and this is just me on the ground as a consumer here in Japan, there's any kind of wine that you want from every country in the world. How do you differentiate a New Zealand wine so that make people want to look for them on the shelves? Because it's really hard to find them. They've just got these little flags, right? So you'll see like this Australian, this is an Australian wine and you know it's an Australian wine because it's got a little Australian flag on the label, on the price label. Or this is an Italian one because it's in the Italian section or whatever. So yeah, how can you as a wine importer or producer help Japanese people to know which wine they would like to have when they are surrounded by so much choice. It's about who markets best, basically, in the end. Yes, he said the market here, the consumers here are so sophisticated. And so you have to create the demand and tell them what they want. So I think Mm. that's a really critical point in your storytelling, uh, if you're coming into market here, that you need to be able to do that and create that demand in the way that you tell your story. That's all for this episode. And we'll see you again soon on Jandals in Japan. Cheers. See ya. See ya. Matane. Thanks for listening. Make sure you check out our guests' links in the show notes. This podcast is brought to you today by Catherine O'Connell Law and Pod Launch with Jane. If you have a great story you think should be on the show, come and find us on LinkedIn or Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time. Matane.